This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Alrighty, everybody, here we go. Welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. It is great to be with you. Another sunny day here in Southern California, August 8th, 2022. And what episode? Let's see, this is episode 127. But less important than the number is the fact that we are starting a series this week. So for those of you who uh, hang out here with us every now and then, uh, you've probably heard me pitch this idea that I want to do a series on deconstruction. And so I've been working on it. I've been putting it all together. And today's the day. Yeah, we are launching the series today. It's going to be five weeks of deconstruction discussions. And I am so looking forward to it. I can't even tell you. Um, Why, you ask? Well, for two reasons. One, because there are a lot of people having this conversation. We'll talk more about that uh, a little bit later. So that's part of it. Um, But then I would say that when I look back on my life, um, I feel like I have been through this process, not once, not twice, maybe even three times. Maybe I'm on my third round of deconstruction. I don't know. So along with all the academic stuff that we're going to work through and talk through, I wanted to inject my story into it just because I feel like it's relevant, but I also use this entire series as a way for me to think through my own experience and put it into perspective and really to wrestle with it from beginning to end that way. So those are the reasons. And um, I guess that said, let's just jump into the minute of transparency. This week, I'm just going to call it my personal deconstruction round one. So I'm going to call this deconstructing my upbringing because today we're going to talk about what it means to deconstruct, right? We're going to define it. We're going to talk about where it comes from, discuss its prevalence in our world. But in the minute of transparency, I really want to start off simple, right? To ease into the conversation by talking about something that I have experienced, but probably each one of us has experienced. And that is the deconstruction of our upbringing, which is something that can actually have absolutely nothing to do with our religious or spiritual beliefs, or it can include that as well. In the world of psychology, we refer to this not as deconstruction, but as individuation. So according to verywellmind.com, individuation is a very real and necessary part of the development process. Uh, It was made popular by the work of Carl Jung, and it's described this way. Individuation is a self-realization process. Through life, people are prone to lose touch with certain aspects of their true selves. Through individuation, they are able to integrate these aspects of themselves with all of their new learning and experiences that they gain growing through life. In other words, throughout our upbringing, the truest version of ourself gets hidden amongst all the junk that we pick up from our parents, our siblings, teachers, pastors, coaches, and even through social media, television, media, stuff like that. Don't believe me? 
Think about the millions of kids who were raised by the Disney Channel. Now, this isn't a bad thing. It's a natural thing, right? But so is individuation. Individuation is a natural process we all go through during our teen years. This was a big part of Erickson's Eight Stages of Development. He talks about in the adolescent years that this is when we really struggle with our identity. The stage is called identity versus identity confusion. And that's really the whole point of individuation, that you're becoming your own person. You're finding the true self inside of you. Now, when going through the individuation process, there are two very important things that, ha that happen. First, you incorporate, and second, you deconstruct. So let's talk about incorporation. So as you grow, as you learn, you learn new things, you try new things, you experiment, you do your own research, and you start to build your own set of beliefs and your own worldview. But while you're doing that, you're also deconstructing because you're starting to question the things that you are taught. You start to remove things that you don't like or that you don't believe to be true. You try some of the things that you were told not to do, and you listen to people that maybe you weren't supposed to listen to. Now, like I said, this can be and is often related to spiritual or religious beliefs, but it doesn't have to be. For me, there were all sorts of things that I was taught that had absolutely nothing to do with religion, right? Things that I had to figure out for myself when I went through the individuation process. So let's start with something simple like automobiles. So my dad taught me the automobile hierarchy. Chevrolet was on top, Ford was a last resort, and if you bought a Dodge product, you were asking for serious problems. Now, I believe this is his rule still to this day, but at some point, the with the rise of the affordable foreign cars, my dad switched his hierarchy over to Honda. And for the rest of my upbringing, I remember having multiple versions of either the Accord, the Odyssey, the Passport, or the Pilot. Next, hockey teams. Very important. Being from Canada, my dad believed that the Canadian teams should always win the Stanley Cup. I'm talking every year. So this directed his rooting, correct? Uh, if two Canadian teams were playing, he got to root for the team that he liked best. If a Canadian team was playing a U.S. team, he would usually root for the Canadian team. I would say almost always. And this even holds true for things like the Olympics and junior tournaments. He just loved to see Canada be successful when it came to hockey. Next up, things like clothing and tattoos. Tattoos were a definite no-no. And clothing had some rules as well. No shirts with heavy metal bands on them. No shirts with alcohol or tobacco products. And obviously no shirts with cuss words on them. Now, these rules, or beliefs if you will, did have some religious overtones, but they were basic rules in our house. And finally, drugs and alcohol. Not tolerated. In fact, this even included caffeine. No coffee, tea, or soda that contained caffeine. Again, somewhat religious in nature, but mostly just beliefs my parents held. And these are just a few off the top of my head. I'm sure there were hundreds, right? Uh, things that we grow up with that we're taught that are either forced on us in some way, shape, or form in our homes. And when we look back, we can try to remember some of those things. Now, there were probably beliefs and standards of living that I can't even see or remember. 
things that are such a part of me now that I don't even associate them with my parents. They just exist. And then there were things that were just plain dumb, right? So have you ever heard the story about the family that passed down the ham recipe from one generation to another? It called for the ham to be cut in half. And for generations, they held very tightly to this little piece of the recipe, assuming that it was a family secret, making the ham taste that much better than other recipes. Then one year, the youngest in the family asked the great-great-grandmother, hey, why do we cut the the ham in half? And the old lady said flippantly, when I first started cooking ham, I only had one baking pan, and it only held half a ham, so I wrote it on the recipe, cut ham in half because the whole thing wouldn't fit in my pan. Now we laugh at this, but think back to your upbringing. Think back to the things that you picked up from your parents. My guess is that there were more things like this than you care to remember. We call them old wives' tales, family traditions, eccentricities, but whatever they are, they exist, and they are ripe for deconstructing. Now, all of that to say that there are a lot of things that we can deconstruct when it comes to our childhoods. And though I didn't start with religion, it's really the main point of this story because I was definitely indoctrinated, if you will, when I grew up into a specific religion. My parents raised us Seventh-day Adventist. My dad grew up in the denomination, and at some point, I think in her college years, my mom joined the religion. So when we were born, they hit the ground running. We were SDA on day one. Church every Saturday, sometimes Friday nights, Christian schools, even high school and college. So you can imagine the wealth of religious knowledge I had by the time I was a college graduate. Raised in a bubble of sorts with some pretty specific uh, beliefs when it comes to Christianity. And at some point, the individuation process kicked in. As an adolescent, I'm sure I started to pull away on some level, right? There was There was the rebellious part of me, um, trying things, doing things that kind of went against my beliefs or what my parents had taught me. But most of this was normal and behavioral in nature, right? In my head, I wasn't really wrestling with the beliefs themselves. I still believed all of it to be true. I just didn't want to follow it because I was a little rebel. In fact, I probably lived this way until I was close to 25. I was working at a modern-day orphanage in Batavia, Illinois, Um, called Mooseheart. And I met another girl that worked there and we dated for a little while, but she introduced me to this whole different side of Christianity. So my upbringing had been very legalistic, right? Focused on yourself and your behavior, your lifestyle. Her version was all about grace and love and serving other people. It was intriguing to say the least, right? In my head, I had just clumped all of Christianity into the same bucket old, stuffy, legalistic, restrictions, fear, anxiety, all of those things. But this was so different. She actually seemed to enjoy being a Christian. There was a level of peace and happiness that was contagious, and that's all it took. Over the next few years, I gravitated away from my traditional SDA upbringing that I was raised in, and I began to attend a more non-denominational expression of Christianity. At the end of the day, the churches I began attending were part of the mega church explosion that was happening in America. Um, I attended Willow Creek in South Barrington, Illinois. Uh, I attended and worked at Granger Community Church in Granger, Indiana, and eventually ended up here in Southern California at Mariner's Church in Irvine, California. 
all non-denominational churches with thousands of attendees each week. And in order to make this shift, I had to deconstruct a few things about my religious views on a variety of levels, right? I had to struggle with the things that I had been taught my whole life. What was true? What was false? What should I hold on to? What should I let go of? And the process isn't over. Because deconstructing isn't like flipping a light switch on and off, right? It's just not that black and white. It's an ongoing process that can be difficult, stressful, anxiety-producing, and at times very abstract and vague. But this is where we're headed. For the next five weeks, I want to do a deep dive into this concept of deconstruction, this phenomenon that we're seeing in our culture today. Today's topic Transcendent Deconstruction Part 1, What It Is and What It Ain't. So we're going to walk through three things today. The first is the origin of the species. The second is deconstruction today. And we're going to wrap things up with commonalities. Number one, the origin of the species. So let's get the boring part out of the way right up front. The origin, the beginning. What is deconstruction, right? And let's talk about the fact that the term deconstruction has been misappropriated, stolen, if you will, from its original intent. When you do a Google search for the word deconstruction, you immediately get hit with these two results. You get the dictionary entry for the word and you get the Wikipedia page for the word. And both look really strange at first glance because it says nothing about a process that people are going through. People leaving their religious communities or their cultures or their political beliefs nothing like that. In fact, you quickly realize that this is a literary term. Let me read the definition just so you can see how complicated and diluted it is. Deconstruction is a philosophical and critical movement starting in the 1960s and especially applied to the study of literature that questions all traditional assumptions about the ability of language to represent reality and emphasizes that a text has no stable reference or identification because words essentially only refer to other words. And therefore, a reader must approach a text by eliminating any metaphysical or ethnocentric assumptions through an active role of defining meaning, sometimes by a reliance on a new word construction, etymology, puns, or other wordplay. Like I said, let's get the boring stuff out of the way quickly. As you can see by this, it has very little to do with the the way that we use the word deconstruction today, right? Um, What we're talking about in this series. But if you read it over and over and over again, you start to see some key concepts stick out. So the first key concept is the fact that it is a movement. The second is that this movement questions traditional assumptions. And the last one is that it's a movement that requires new concepts in order to fully understand things. And that to me is the overlap. That's probably the reason why the word was stolen for our purposes today. When you look at it that way, people today who are deconstructing their religion, for example, are part of a movement that is questioning the traditional assumptions and it's incorporating new concepts into their worldview. Drop the mic we're done for the day. Actually, that was a total oversimplification, but we're not going to spend much time there because on some level, it's irrelevant to our conversation, right? Just know that the term deconstruction came out of the world of literature, but in our culture today, it is used to refer to people questioning things 
that they thought to be true, mainly in the realm of religion and spirituality, but not exclusively. Okay, now that we have that narrowed down and out of the way, let's dive into the content. So what are some of the ways that people are deconstructing today? I'm going to run through a few narrow categories just to get things started. So let's start with a big one, political deconstruction. Um, it's my belief that there are people leaving the political party that they grew up in and looking for a new home. Next, we have cultural deconstruction. So this could be very possible for people who are moving from one country to another or one culture to another. There's going to be some deconstruction involved with the beliefs and the worldview that you grew up with in this new area or this new part of the world. Next, we have educational deconstruction. So education in our country has often been referred to as indoctrination, and probably for good reason, right? Over the years, we've come to learn that some of our textbooks were more propaganda than truth. History has been changed. History has been hidden. History has been retold in such a way to make our country look the best it can look. And though it is pretty amazing, don't get me wrong, we can't lose sight of the fact that we've done some pretty terrible things. The U.S. definitely isn't as squeaky clean as we make it out to be. So coming to terms with that requires some deconstructing, some reprogramming. Next, we have sexual or gender deconstruction. So think about the traditional gender roles that we've been taught our entire life. Girls wear pink, boys wear blue, girls play with dolls, boys play with trucks. Girls are soft, boys have a harder exterior. Girls make better parents, and boys are better at bringing home the bacon. See what I mean? All sorts of things that need to be deconstructed, not just in our heads, but in our culture as well. Next, we have scientific deconstructions. So my science friends aren't going to like this one at all, but over the years, even scientists have had to deconstruct some of the things that they believe to be true, right? Things that they were taught, things that they believe to be constant, ideas like the world being flat and how celestial bodies move around one another, right? There were very specific beliefs in the past that have been proven not to be true. Skeletons that appeared to be the missing link and then over time have been proven to be fake. And think about the medical community. Treatments that we thought were so useful were actually harmful, like bloodletting, uh, drugs that were introduced and then found to be harmful after years of research. Over the years, science has had to do their fair share of deconstruction in order to keep making progress and doing no harm. And last but not least, religious deconstruction. So this is deconstructing the religious beliefs that you were raised with and moving away from those beliefs, either to a modified version or throwing them out altogether. And for the purposes of this series, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Not because it's the main type, but because it seems to be the trend in our world today. The movement that seems to be picking up speed and dominating the social media channels that I follow. And also because I believe that it's the one area that can have the biggest impact on our lives. In fact, an eternal impact, depending on how everything shakes out. Number two, the deconstruction bandwagon. So let's dive into this version, right? The religious deconstruction that appears to be so trendy these days. But before we do, I want to make a distinction between the ways that I've seen people deconstructing religiously or spiritually. So based on the conversations, the articles, listening to people talk on social media, 
It appears to me that there may be at least two, possibly three variations of deconstruction. The first I want to just call religious deconstruction. So this would be a person questioning the religious tradition that they grew up in, stepping away from the uniqueness of that tradition and removing themselves from active participation in that tradition. Now, important, people in this category, I think most of them still believe in God on some level, right? Or at least a higher power. People in this category often move toward omniism, pantheism, universalism, um, basically spiritual beliefs that kind of pull away from traditional Christianity and have a bigger focus, a higher focus on a higher power. All right, number two, I would consider faith deconstruction. So the first was religious, the second is faith. So in this category, it's a person questioning both the religious tradition they were raised in and at the same time, the existence of God and possibly stepping away from both. In many cases, becoming hyper-focused on science as their new defining worldview. Now, important of in this category, people in this category fully move away from faith in God to a belief that he either doesn't exist or that you can't prove that he exists. So people in this category often refer to themselves as agnostics, atheists, or secular humanists. Number three, spiritual deconstruction. So the first was religious, the second is faith, and the third is spiritual deconstruction. And I don't really have a definition for this one. It just sounded good, right? It just sounded like you got religions, you've got faith, and then you've got spirituality, which is just a much more general sounding thing. So it really sounds like it should be a thing, but maybe it's the same as faith. I don't know. Or maybe spiritual deconstruction could be the umbrella and the other two fall underneath it. I don't know. But because I don't know, we're just going to leave that one alone for now. And we're really going to focus on the two that I discussed already, religious deconstruction and faith deconstruction. Now, we're not going to spend the rest of the series jumping back and forth between these two, discussing similarities and differences, because from what I've seen, it's very difficult to distinguish between the two, right? People are people. People are in constant state of change. So the minute I start labeling one person as part of religious deconstruction and another person as part of faith deconstruction, they're going to end up doing something that challenges that label. So for the rest of this series, we're just going to refer to people as deconstructing or being in the deconstruction process, right? And maybe toward the end, we'll pick back up the discussion about religious versus faith. But for now, we'll keep our discussion focused on the process of deconstruction. So let's start with some numbers. I don't know about you, but I am seeing huge numbers of people on social media that self-identify as going through deconstruction. How do I know? Because they tell you. In fact, for many, it seems to be the only thing they want to talk about. It's as if the filter through which they are living their lives is this process of deconstruction. Oh, and they also use hashtags like hashtag deconstruction, hashtag deconstructing, things like that. Um, I just pulled a few numbers, and on Instagram, if you look up the hashtag deconstruction, there's over 330,000 posts. If you look up hashtag deconstructing, there's 18,000. On TikTok, things get extraordinarily bigger. 
So the hashtag deconstruction has over 460 million views. The hashtag deconstructing has over 37 million views. The hashtag exvangelical has 937 million views. And then exmo or exmormon hashtags combined are close to a billion combined views. Now, I understand that social platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, they're all driven by algorithms, right? Which means there's a chance that I'm doing this to myself. In other words, if I follow people who are deconstructing, I'm going to be shown more posts with that same content. If I watch a video, for example, on TikTok about deconstruction, and I watch the entire thing, more of those videos with that similar content are going to start showing up. Now, on the one hand, This is awesome, right? Because if I love cats, I'm going to get to see a lot more cat videos. But on the other hand, when it comes to controversial topics, very highly debated or polarized topics like Roe v. Wade, anything political, religious content, conspiracy theories, it's suddenly not such a good thing because you start to see only the content that lines up with your views, right? The content that you appear to agree with. And why is this so dangerous? Well, it can start to look like the entire world believes the same way as you. So in my case with deconstruction, it can start to look a lot like the entire world is deconstructing, at least to me, in my feed, on my For You page. But the funny thing is that your TikTok feed could be 98% people and posts about cooking with an air fryer. Maybe you think that everyone in the world uses air fryers. So the important thing for us to understand is that this is the way these platforms work. And that's fine, as long as we don't allow our social media feeds to dictate our worldview. So in my case, I need to be very aware of the fact that even though I'm seeing thousands of people in the deconstruction process, it's a very saturated, filtered uh, population that I'm getting to see all at one time. Now, that said, do I discount the fact that this is real, that it's actually happening? I don't think so, because I feel like I see it and I hear it everywhere I go. I still remember, thinking back to my time in Indiana, I remember a friend of mine deconstructing very quickly, leaving the church and becoming an atheist. Um, Both of the large churches that I attended were very much what I would call turnstile churches. In other words, people came in hot and then they went out cold, in the front door, out the back door. Some to other churches, but some completely disillusioned and disconnected altogether. Um, I've had conversations with people who are starting to question their religious upbringing. In fact, my own brother has asked me numerous times questions like, do you really believe all that stuff we were taught as kids? And there's no doubt that we live in a country where religion is a lightning rod. So right now in our culture, many people are being radicalized by the religious right while others are moving in the opposite direction, right, toward a more liberal worldview. I mentioned Mormons when we were talking about the social media hashtags, and it blows my mind how many Mormons are coming out of the woodwork these days, leaving the LDS church. Some leaving faith altogether, others leaving Mormonism for another mainstream Christian tradition. But this mass exodus hasn't even escaped the media, right? There have been at least four TV miniseries about the LDS church recently, shows like Under the Banner of Heaven that basically document a darker side of their religion. And then there are the podcasts I listen to, 
many of them spiritual in nature, but none specifically dedicated to deconstruction, and yet many of them have pulled in deconstruction as a topic of interest, showing me yet again that this isn't something new and it's not something that's going away. It's not just a phase that will soon pass, it's literally a movement and it's picking up speed. Okay, let's shift focus a little bit and talk about the Bible. So, the Bible is the book that most Christians turn to for guidance, right? It's Some of them consider it the operator's manual, if you will, for the human being. Now, I'm not a pastor or a theologian or, or even a Bible scholar, but I've read the Bible enough to know and remember verses like this. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. In other words, as we move closer and closer to the end of time, people will become more and more disillusioned with the things that they have been taught, and many will break away from those things. Now, I understand that this is most likely talking about faith, right? That people will leave the faith, giving up their belief in God altogether. But I also find it interesting that people are falling away from organized religion as well, leaving their religious traditions in order to have a more sincere and targeted faith experience. And I can't help but wonder if this verse is all-inclusive, right? If it hits at the very thing that we're seeing right now, deconstruction on many levels. Interesting, to say the least. Now, before we leave this section, I thought it'd be interesting to illustrate with a real-life example. So, in my research, I found many deconstruction stories, but one that rose to the top was Abraham Piper, the son of prominent theologian John Piper. I had never heard this story before for some reason, but I was immediately hooked, right? John Piper is a recognized theologian. He's been a preacher at various churches, he's taught at the university level, and he's the founder of a very large web ministry at desiringgod.org. On the outside, everything looks amazing, right? He stands at the top of the Christian world as a thought leader and a mentor, and yet things at home weren't so amazing. On John's Wikipedia page, there is one line in the personal life section that reads like this. His son, Abraham Piper, has publicly criticized evangelical Christianity. And that's it. That's all it says. But it's a little bigger than that. And I'm not going to assume that I understand what Abraham thinks or how he deconstructed. Um, I stuck a New York Times article in the show notes if you're interested. It explains some of the story. Um, but if you're really interested in the details, just find Abraham on TikTok and let him tell his own story. He's been pretty transparent about the entire thing. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not on the side of John Piper here. I'm not saying... Oh, that's so sad that John Piper has a wayward son that isn't following in his footsteps. The piece that I do find sad is the relational part, right? If there's tension between the two of them, that's not good. I would never wish that on any family, especially a father and son relationship. But when it comes to a child deconstructing what they were taught, Abraham is no different than any of us, right? In fact, this is what thousands of people are doing. He just happened to grow up in a traditional Christian home, even more traditional than mine, right? He lived a very high, high-level public life with a dad that people knew and recognized. And during his upbringing, I have no doubt he saw things like hypocrisy, you know, inappropriate things happening behind the scenes, behind the public curtain. Uh, and at some point, he said, this isn't for me. And he began the process of deconstruction. And you can't blame him for that. 
I still remember a stereotype that I grew up with. We all thought that PKs or pastor's kids were the most rebellious kids you could find. Now, obviously, this was a stereotype and a label that isn't deserved, but on some level, it makes sense, right? As an adolescent, you begin the individuation process. And for a PK, this process is going to automatically include some very rigid religious morals and values that you were taught as a kid, right? And if you're going to rebel against something, that would probably be it. So on some level, I feel like Abraham Piper came by his deconstruction process honestly. And like I said, you don't really know a person's story until you sat down with them and let them explain it to you. So go follow Abraham Piper and you'll see what I'm talking about. Number three, commonalities. So why do people deconstruct, right? What reasons are people giving as to where the process started and why it has continued? Well, Let's look at that as we wrap things up. So what I did is I found four articles. Each one kind of has a little list of the reasons why people deconstruct. And I took all of the items, threw them all together into one big list. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through that list. So the websites that I found, I found the gospelcoalition.org, renew.org, woodsidebible.org, and carrynewhoff.com. So like I said, I have a pretty big long list, but I quickly realized as I was looking at this list that there are two buckets of reasons. The first I'm going to call what naive churches believe. And number two are reasons that are a bit more open-minded. So let's start with some of the ones that I feel um, the church believes that are very naive and the, the church throws out as reasons why people are deconstructing. So the first is poor teaching. So basically suggesting that if our pastors just did a better job at preaching, then people wouldn't be questioning. People wouldn't leave the church. Number two is street cred. So the idea that it's cool to deconstruct and that people are just doing it to fit in on some level. Number three, cultural pressures. So this is very similar to street cred, but it's a little more on the level of peer pressure, right? This idea that the world has such a strong pull and that people are feeling like they have to deconstruct because everyone else is. Number four, we resonate with the me against the world narrative. So this whole suggestion is that people love a pity party, right? That we we love to play the victim and that deconstruction is in some way tied to this. Number five, forgetting the beauty of the Christian faith. So the idea that people just lose sight of how perfect Christianity is, and that if they would just focus on that beauty, there would be no need to deconstruct. And then finally, my favorite, a desire to sin, right? The idea that deconstruction has nothing to do with questions or doubts you're having. It's just, I want to do all the drugs, have all the sex, and do all of the things I'm not supposed to do. Now, like I said, those are are reasons that I believe are naive, things that churches may um, throw out there as reasons why people are deconstructing. But let's look at some of the other ones, ones that I believe are a bit closer to the truth based on the people I've talked to in the, the podcasts I've listened to, things like that. So the first reason is church hurt. So this is something that my wife and I know a lot about, and I talked about it a little bit in the minute of transparency, but Ultimately, it's crazy how much power the church holds in the lives of people. 
right? Which is why I believe that God requires so much of church leaders and that he holds them responsible for the harm that they do on a whole different level. And it's a level that I don't think many church leaders even understand or take seriously. But when it comes to church hurt, it can happen on a couple levels, right? So it can happen to an attendee, right, that it, that believes that they're hurt by the church. Or it could be a staff member like Tammy and I were um, that are hurt by the church. Number two, questions and doubts. So the first and most important thing here is that as humans, we all have questions and doubts, right? This is just a major part of who we are. It's part of the human condition. And a lot of people are saying that this is one of the reasons why they're deconstructing. In fact, I think this is one of the biggest reasons, which is why we're probably going to do an entire section of this series on questions and doubts, right? The, the reasons why are the, the specific things that people are pointing to as to why they're deconstructing. But for now, let's just keep it on a high level and talk about questions and doubts in general. So the problem occurs when the church doesn't provide a safe place for people to ask these questions and to work through their doubts. Instead, what happens is churches, churches often create a very rigid set of beliefs and they hold on to them no matter what. And they aren't very good at allowing for open conversations. This is definitely seen more recently in the political activism and in the past, what this thing called purity culture, among other things. Um, movements that have been very rigid and don't allow for any questions to be asked. Number three, mistrust of large and powerful institutions. So this is a very real thing these days, right? Our kids have grown up suspicious of large institutions. And time and time again, the institutions have proven them right. Companies that cut corners and harm people or the environment. Organizations that say they're doing one thing and then they're found out to be lying. Churches that are exposed when corruption is found within them. So we've talked about Mars Hill and Hillsong. Mark Driscoll, Carl Lentz, Brian Houston, right? These are all scandals that suggest you can't trust large institutions. Number four, rejecting church in its current form. So the idea here is that many of our recent generations grew up with this watered-down megachurch experience, a very shallow faith, a very experiential and individualistic faith, which created an environment that isn't congruent with the world around it, right? That it's, it's out of touch with the harsh realities of this world, especially in a post-COVID world with the political polarization, racial tension, the removal of people's rights, global wars, natural disasters, right? When you look around and you see the pain in the world, the megachurch format of coming on a weekend service and having this high emotional experience doesn't really connect with that pain that's going on in the world. Number five, globalization. So this is the idea that a hundred years ago, people grew up in small towns with their version of Christianity, and they weren't really exposed to a lot of other belief systems, right? But with globalization and mass communication like social media, um, every other belief out there is available to you immediately on your phone or laptop computer or wherever, right? So simply because we're exposed to more options, this increases the likelihood of deconstruction. Number six, burning out. So this is the idea that people have been running hot for way too long and they're getting burned out. 
And this is really baked into that megachurch platform I talked about earlier, the formula that seems to work, right? You bring people in, you get them fired up, and then you start putting all of these things on them, asking them to do all of these different things, which gets them immediately connected. It makes them feel community. And at the same time, it also fuels the fire um, that keeps the train moving. So I'm just going to walk through a laundry list of things that most people who attend a megachurch are part of. So you have your weekend service and midweek, if that's available. You start giving them money. You serve on a team at the church, multiple teams if you can. You make sure to take their discipleship class or their growth path or whatever they call it at their church. You join a small group. You keep your kids involved in kids and student ministries. You may volunteer or chaperone kids events because your kids are in those ministries. Um, Then they really want you to sign up for a global mission trip because every good church member needs to do at least one global mission trip. Then there's little things like, oh, join the meal train for the pastor's wife who just had their eighth child. And the list goes on and on and on. And you can see how this eventually leads to burnout. And this is just for the regular attendee. Now let's say that you work on staff at that church and it can be even harder. Not only do you do all of the things that we just listed above, but then there's other things, things called staff requirements. So at Mariners, my wife and I were asked to run a 12-week course, like a discipleship course, multiple times a year in order to fill our requirements. And over time, it just adds up, right? You get burned out and people leave the church or people start to deconstruct. Number seven, politics taking center stage. So there's a movement in this country, we've all seen it, toward Christian patriotism or Christian nationalism. This whole belief that the U.S. is a Christian nation and therefore should be run by Christian politicians enforcing Christian values. And as this movement intensifies, people are starting to see the disconnect, right? Churches are becoming more and more focused on political power and coercion than in being the church for those around them, right? Politics versus people. The example that Jesus offered, loving people, taking care of people's needs, All of that is put on the back burner in order to get more Christian politicians into government. And this disconnect for many people has led to them deconstructing. Now, as I often say, this is not an exhaustive list. But as we move further and further into this series, we'll keep adding detail to this list as we go. Okay, so we've discussed some of the common reasons why people start deconstructing. But as we end this section, I I did want to touch on some of the things that people experience when they begin the deconstruction process, because I believe this is an important piece of the puzzle, this whole cause and effect thing. Um, You know, you might think that when a person starts deconstructing, that they actually start to feel more free and more alive and like life just gets better. But what we're finding is that Going through the deconstruction process is actually very difficult. So let's go back to the article from verywellmind.com on individuation. And it lists some of the things that a person will go through when they begin the individuation process. And like we said, individuation and deconstruction are very similar. So here are the big ones. Anxiety, depression, lack of boundaries, lack of self-awareness, 
low satisfaction with one's life, low self-esteem, problems with motivation and goal setting, poor decision-making, poor self-esteem, self-doubt. Ouch. Doesn't sound fun, does it? In fact, it sounds rather difficult, but at the same time, this shouldn't be that strange, right? This should make total sense to us because these are documented issues that adolescents face when they go through the individuation process. So why wouldn't it be the same as we start to head down the road of deconstruction? The two processes are very similar and have a lot in common. In fact, just this morning, um, I was scrolling through TikTok and a woman came on who lives in Texas and she started discussing how she stopped drinking and stopped going to her church around the same time. And in that process of deconstructing her, her religious beliefs and stopping drinking, she realized that she was all alone. She lost her church community. She lost many of her friends. She doesn't feel comfortable going out to the bars or clubs to find friends because of the alcohol. And she was asking other people on TikTok, what do I do? How do I connect with people? And there was just a sadness in her eyes, right? This loneliness that was creeping in because the deconstruction process isn't easy. It's hard and it takes a toll on us, on our mental health, our self-worth, and even how we view the world around us. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, well, then just go back to church. I mean, if it means that much to you and fixes all your problems, just go back to church. And on the surface, it seems that simple. But at the heart of the matter, it really isn't, right? Because it means going against something that your heart is telling you, just so that you can feel good for a little while. And this is something that I hear over and over again when listening to people discuss their deconstruction process. They say things like, I didn't want this to happen. I didn't go looking for this. If I could make it all go away, I would. I know it sounds strange, but people who deconstruct are following their hearts. They're often doing the one thing that they think they need to do in order to pursue truth, right? We'll talk a lot more about this in other parts of the series, but for now, just understand that deconstruction isn't a flippant thing that somebody jumps into because it's a fad. A lot of times, deconstruction is something that starts weighing on your heart so much so that you don't believe there's any other thing you can do but start walking down that road. So let's land the plane. Part one, in the can. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. This was a great start, but there is a lot more to come. Uh, this week, I really only have two questions for you. Question number one, do you feel like you are in the process of deconstruction? And number two, if you are, what are you deconstructing? Are you deconstructing your religion or your faith or both? That's really what I want you to wrestle with this week is just to think through that in your own life, in your own scenario. And then we'll pick up the conversation again next week in part two, the indoctrination enlightenment cycle. So until then, have a great week, everyone. And as always, keep transcending human.
you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, and as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.